anybody remember that scene in Miller's Crossing where John Turturro begs for his life? Sure. Look into your heart. I cry every time. What's up, everybody? We're back. It's Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. My name is Carly. And a very special guest joining us today on the factory floor. Uh, returning champ, Bill Ryan, is here today. Bill, what's the rumpus? <laughs> Everything's, I don't, now I don't remember what they said in response to that. You put me... <laughs> Everything's good. Thanks, Aaron. so glad to hear it bill um it's been a minute since you joined us you were on uh, an excellent episode about exorcist 3 uh back during the the spooky season uh and we decided to to bring you back uh in honor of uh, a new criterion release of one of these films um but uh as we were talking about it uh realized it was grafted to another work in in these filmmakers oeuvre as well um today we're going to be discussing both miller's crossing from 1990 and barton fink from 1991 both written by joel and ethan cohen uh the cohen bros colloquially to those who are fans bill i I gotta start by just asking you about when you saw both of these films initially um did you see them when they were released and how you feel about both of them uh, individually and in comparison to one another. Uh, I saw them both in the theater. Um, I would have been 14 when Miller's Crossing came out. And it was the first of their movies that I saw in the theater. Uh, This is going to be a bit of a ramble, but I remember when the commercials for Raising Arizona uh, were on TV, like everybody in my family, and it's a big family, thought it looked like shit. We thought it looked so (laughs) stupid. And then... She rented it and was like, all right, let's watch it. And it's great. It's a fantastic movie. And then that was like 86 or 86, I think. 87 maybe. And then, you know, I had older brothers who were into movies. And I was just starting to get into movies. And he, my brother Pat probably had this movie magazine in it. Uh, and it had a picture of the next movie by the guys who made Raising Arizona. And it was a picture of... I'm assuming, this is a long time ago, I'm assuming it was a picture of Gabriel Byrne with his fedora and his trench coat. And like, huh, that doesn't seem like the same kind of movie at all. (laughs) And I was probably also at this time getting into crime fiction, which has been a passion of mine for a long time. But I was probably really getting into it at this point. So I was excited on two levels. And I went to see uh, see Moore's Crossing. And it is, to this day, my favorite film. I've seen it, um, God God alone knows how many times. Hmm. Um, I never get tired of it. I thought, like yesterday when I put it on, maybe I'd, you know, zone out a little bit, and I pretty much didn't. All of us who went to see it, it was probably me and, like, four or five of my brothers. I have a big family. And we were all just buzzing on the way home. And then... (laughs) 
next year, um, <laughs> Barton Fink comes out, and I'm at this point, I'm I'm really geared up for the Coen Brothers. I know who they are now. <laughs> I don't know if I had read at the time, like in when I because at this point I'm reading movie magazines and stuff, and I don't know if I had remember. I don't remember if I read in that time, but I think I had that they had written Barton Fink, the script for Barton Fink, because they hit writer's block on Miller's Crossing. And I said, oh, okay. And then I see the movie, like, this is what you write when you have writer's block? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I, okay. <laughs> so you write a horror movie about writer's block, basically. Right. Uh, al- also set in the 40s, um, which is, you know, the aesthetic, or their, their version of 1940s aesthetic really appeals to me. And uh, I, I, like, Miller's Crossing, I'd never seen anything like that, and Barton Fink just blew me away. And I think at the time I probably preferred Miller's Cro- or Barton Fink rather. And now I would say, you know, between those two and a serious man, it's really kind of a, a toss up. I think I think Serious Man is their best. Hmm. And then I think Miller's Crossing and Barton Fink might be my personal favorites. And I was just all in at that point. I've seen everything in the theater since then except for Intolerable Cruelty and the two uh that went to streaming because Ballad of Buster Scruggs, even though it went to theaters and so did Macbeth, they didn't play near me. Well, Macbeth did, but I didn't get, I didn't get to it in time. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, one of the reasons why uh, we decided to, to kind of couple these two films together is uh, because Barton Fink was one that was born out of a period uh, where the Coens decided to, to take a little bit of a break from Miller's crossing uh, mm-hmm. when their work had slowed. Uh, I think that, to this day, they still kind of uh, disagree with the term writer's block <laughs> and say that, yeah. uh, you know, they, they uh, uh, had slowed in their in their process and their in their creative output. It was a plot issue, as I recall, mm-hmm. when I was crossing. There were some plot things they couldn't quite work out. Mm. Yeah, and and it is a you know a very windy kind of labyrinthine story, and and you know certainly feels like it it would be difficult to traverse through that and, and to work out all the different mechanisms to, to get to a satisfying conclusion, which they managed to pull off mm-hmm. masterfully. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, just the unbridled, I don't even want to call it excess of a Barton Fink, but it, it certainly feels like something that came from just opening up a valve and, you know, mm-hmm. just sort of like spilled out. Yeah. Um, Carly's Carly's brand new to both of these though. I'm interested to hear what Carly has to say about, about Miller's and Barton Fink having just seen them for the first time. Yes. I feel like a total rube um, having never seen either of them. I, I would have to agree with you, Bill, that I think Miller's Crossing is has probably become my favorite Coen Brothers movie. I've always really loved Fargo, um, mm-hmm. which I think is probably another like indication of my rubeness because uh, no, no, I, no, 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 that movie's <laughs> flawless. There's no, it's flawless. It's, it's there's, no, there's no shame in having that be your main Coen Brothers. No, it's a movie. great movie. I I feel like on uh, on film Twitter, which I just shudder even saying out loud, but uh, on on film Twitter, like that's you know an opinion to have i suppose but um but it's but it's one that seems to be um thought lesser of that film but i adore it i i watched it when i was a kid it was it was one of the first movies my mom said okay i'm taking this out of the box of vhs's that you can't see along with like pretty woman <laughs> and she was sure, like those two you you can see this <laughs> um yeah. 
Every, but, anything but those two. Interestingly, you know, Caligula was on the approved list for a long <laughs> sure. time, but yeah. but you know, you couldn't uh, you couldn't see Pretty Woman. Um, in any case, uh, I think Miller's Crossing has just surpassed Fargo for me. It's riveting, but it's also meditative. It's mm-hmm. um, it's just such a such a beautiful film, and mm-hmm. I think the thing that struck me most when when it finished is. I don't even want to say it finishes with a whimper because it doesn't, but it just sort of trails off at the end, like the end of a song, right? Mm -hmm. That sort of fades out. And what I was left with was like the feeling, the sort of like hangover of the movie, like Mm -hmm. the feeling of what it felt like to sit and like Mm -hmm. focus on something so intently for, for two hours. Um, And that's, that's a, a really cool feeling to have at the end of watching a movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I saw it in 1990, cause you know, it took a lot longer for movies to hit VHS than they do DVD and blue right now or streaming. And all I was like, when do I get to see this again? You know, yes. and I, I could go to the theater again. And for some reason, I, cause I was more inclined back then to see movies more than once in the theater. For whatever reason, we didn't do that i that's weird to, to think about because i saw misery like four times <laughs> um, as one does yeah um, the feeling when the movie starts and you hear john polito the great late great john polito um giving that speech uh, about ethics he's you know you uh aaron you said earlier uh in reference to barton fink that you didn't think excess was the right word i don't mind that word in reference to these because there's some excess in both of them, um, and perf- like John Polito's performance is excessive, but in the best possible way. It's it, it's a marvelous, marvelous one of my favorite performances of all time. And and then they you see Albert Finney and you see Gabriel Byrne's face, which I want to I want to talk about the casting, which you brought up on on uh, Twitter the other day. But uh, but Gabriel Byrne's face, I'd never seen him in anything before. Um, it just felt like he was from the 1930s for one thing and a hundred percent Irish. Obviously he is, but it just, you, you get into the vibe of the movie so quickly um, and the look of it. And then J E Freeman, the late great J E Freeman as the Dane um, and date the Dane and uh, Tom exchanging looks while Leo and, and Johnny Casper are talking and you just, like everything is being set up. And then those credits with that music, which is one of the most beautiful pieces of film music I have ever heard. And up through the trees and oh, I was just so on board. It's like five minutes and I'm like, you got me completely. Completely. Yeah. There's something that I really love about on on the other side of this golden age of television, we call it like a cold open before the credits now. But you know, in this movie, just that you get this entire long establishing scene before we have the actual title credits. I love when a movie does that. It, it, mm-hmm. it feels very special. And Carter Burwell's score in this is incredible. It's, it's so it's, good. It's a masterpiece. He works with the Coens on, on both of these films that we're talking about. Um, today. He worked on them with, on almost all of them. I think there's maybe one he didn't cause it didn't have a score maybe. Right. He is in, in two very different modes. I feel like, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's very sort of like classic brooding kind of Hollywood uh, score in this one. And, and he uses a, a much more sparse kind of instrumentation in Barton Fink, but yeah. uh, is able to kind of evoke that, 
that uh, subjectivity and interiority that that film needs. Anyway, he's 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 brilliant. He writes uh, incredible music, and and the music in Miller's Crossing is definitely, I think, one of my favorite things he's ever yes. been a part of. And it's it's my favorite. He he's one of the, my favorite composers, and that's my favorite. Well, the oboe, the use of an oboe, the mm-hmm. oboe, yes, yeah. which is one of my favorite wind instruments. For the record, <laughs> even saying that right. as a flute player, I'll make a note of that. <laughs> yeah the score is beautiful um the thing that i really appreciated about it is i didn't notice it until i noticed it right like Mm -hmm. it does a really great job of sort of inserting you into the movie and doing the thing that movie scores are supposed to do and then it has these moments where i it was it was all i could hear um Mm -hmm. and even when there was you know something gorgeous taking place on on camera um yeah, I I became a fan. I think of of his work uh, more so than ever before because of these two films. I'm talking about Frank. I'm talking about character. I'm talking about hell, Leo. I ain't embarrassed to use the word. I'm talking about ethics. When I fix a fight, say I uh, pay a three to one favor to throw a goddamn fight. I figure I got the right to expect that fight to go off at 3-1. But every time I lay in bed with a son of a bitch burning burn bomb, before I know it, the odds is even up. Or worse, I'm betting on the short money. Bernie ain't satisfied with the honest dollar he can make off the Vic. He ain't satisfied with the business I do on his book. He is selling tips on how I bet. And that means part of the payoff that should be riding on my hip is riding on someone else's. So, back we go to these questions. Friendship, character, ethics. So it's clear what I'm saying. As mud. Getting right into it, let's let's t- talk about that opening scene uh, okay. with with these four players, right? With with Polito, Finney. Gabriel Byrne, and then, of course, J.E. Freeman, um, sets the stage immediately. Part of the punchline almost is just like the fact that like it is John Polito, right? Like making these comments about ethics and about, uh, you know, the the, the fairness of the business, you know, just like you see this guy in in just, you know, a classic sort of like slime ball character actor being like the the voice of of ethics and morality within (laughs) this Mm -hmm. world. Weirdly, he might be the most ethical character in the movie. Yes, one hundred percent. He I, actually is. I would argue he absolutely <laughs> and, is, and that's why he dies. Yes, <laughs> because yes. he's the most ethical person in the movie. Yeah, and, no, I, I was thinking exactly about that. That it's like again the the second part of that joke being that like the the person with the most stringent moral compass, the person who follows his his ethics to the end, uh, is is John Polito, is Johnny Casper. Uh, but all four of these guys are just mm-hmm. giving incredible performances. Yeah. Half of it is, is as you mentioned, just in like the the steeliness of Gabriel Byrne's face, the angles of it, and like the cold blue uh, of his eyes. I think they're blue. Maybe they, maybe they not. are. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> uh, and Albert Finney, you know, like it, this film, as we've already mentioned, is is so indebted to like classic period noirs. Albert Finney's performance, the way that he's uh, articulating his dialogue, seems to get the assignment very well. He's he's mm-hmm. speaking in that kind of 
period appropriate sort of accent that thing that's like not really an american accent or an irish accent it's like a it's like a movie accent yeah but it's not it's not as like it doesn't come off as any kind of parody of anything no um they never say where this takes place um explicitly um although there is a shot um the shot where gabriel burns reading the newspaper when they cut into the like, coffee shop or the mm-hmm. diner and you hear an off-screen voice saying what sounds like in 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 a foreign language i don't know what it would be but and then the last word sounds like chicago but they never that's as close as you get to thinking is this chicago yeah mm-hmm. um so it could be it's somewhere you assume in the midwest some city in the midwest chicago-ish you know so you never he's not doing a particular accent you're right but he's not doing some weird he he didn't make the mistake of inventing something or going over the top with anything and he completely tamped down on his actual accent i want to I, then i want to say you mentioned uh, the other day on twitter the they the cohen's had written had, had typed out like a cast wish list yes and albert finney's not on there Right, and I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, Gabriel Byrne isn't either. Gabriel Byrne is not on there. No, I don't. I don't remember the other two. Um, uh, if if J. E. Freeman or John Polito were on there, I assume those were the four listed. They had originally cast Trey Wilson, mm-hmm. who played Nathan Arizona, um, in Raising Arizona. Um, sadly, uh, he died of a heart attack before shooting started, so they had to recast. Right, but they cast Albert Finney. And as I recall, when I was reading about this some time ago, um, that changed their thinking about the movie and and the look and the vibe of it because of his Irishness, his just natural Irishness. Because mm-hmm. if you in the screenplay, if you read the printed screenplay, um, Tom is described, even though his name is Tom Regan and he's an Irishman, but or he's of Irish extraction anyway. They describe him as looking like uh, Clark Gable. Hmm. Huh. And then, but when they get Albert Finney in, when they when they cast Albert Finney, they decide to really go all in on the ethnicity of the characters, and they make it really Irish. And I don't know if that made it. I mean, I don't know that you can say that I'm, I, I'm of Irish extraction, so I don't have any problem with anybody saying they went all in on being Irish. I'm not going to say that they nailed the Italian <laughs> part of it because they. Sure. I, I'm not going to say that, but. Or, uh, but the but the ethnicity aspect of this movie is very much a part of it. You know, the the Jewish characters, the Italian characters, the Irish characters, and the Eddie Dane. I don't know what he what he is necessarily, but what his extraction would be, and maybe that's part of that too that I hadn't considered. But just to have this more. I don't know. I, I don't want to say straightforward because they've never made a really straightforward movie that I can think of. But to have this, to 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 not have the eth- ethnicity as part of it, as your original idea for the movie, uh, st- strikes me as very odd when you finally see it. And it's like, well, how can you? T- how, how can it not be part of it? But of course, things develop as you know, you know, happy accidents. Not to say Trey Wilson's death is a happy accident, for God's mm-hmm. sake. But but you know, things happen and that changes your perspective and then it becomes this other thing. And I just think it's, it's just an interesting look at the process, I guess. Yeah. And the, the ethnicity piece, you know, we're talking about, about where the the film takes place. I thought Chicago or, or perhaps some other big uh, East coast city Mm -hmm. potentially shot Um, in new Orleans though. 
shot in New Orleans. In New Orleans. Was it really? Yeah. Yes. I didn't know that. Uh-huh. Um, but but precisely because of the sort of ethnic tribes that we're working with here, and and if we know what we know about, you know, immigration into America, um, that like a lot of the working class and also like gangland people yeah. that mm-hmm. uh that ran some of these big cities in the twenties when when I assume that this movie takes place, um, were Irish and Italian. Um and that that so informs, you know, how I'm thinking about time and place and like not just time and place in terms of geography and and history, but also um kind of like material circumstances of mm-hmm. these people, which you can infer based on what you know about their histories in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's a lot of stuff underlying this movie that is, you just have to get there on your own, which is my preferred mode of <laughs> doing this sort of thing. Like I said, when we left the theater, my brain was buzzing. I, I wasn't necessarily <laughs> thinking about this. I wasn't necessarily thinking about this stuff. Keep in mind, I was 14. So cut me a break here. <laughs> So we're driving home, and I say, so was Bernie and the Dane and Mink gay? Because, mm-hmm. you know, they don't come, they do kind of come right out, to be honest with you. But at 14, you know, uh, they just never say it outright, but there's, there's all this stuff underneath some of the dialogue that is just like, well, this is clearly the situation here, you know, and and you just it's just it's for you to pick up that's that's it they don't they're not going to tell you because these characters wouldn't say it you know tom's not going to say to leo you know bernie's gay right you know the the, it's just they've lived with among these people among this group of characters for so long that they know so they're not going to say it because they don't need to say it because everybody knows and that's not Mm -hmm. done often enough when we started watching this one, and it's been a little while since I had seen it, we we're in the habit of watching pretty much everything with captions on. I like to be able to read the dialogue so I don't mm-hmm. miss uh, elements of it. At the beginning, you know, when when Tom wakes up after like a drunken uh, night of gambling away everything mm-hmm. but his trousers, you know, uh, we we hear very explicitly from the barkeep that uh, the the people who made off with his hat are. Um, are Mink and Verna. Mink and Verna, right? And so he, he says goes Verna to get his and Mink. He changes the order in the second time when he has to repeat himself. <laughs> right. Um, and so then he goes to see her. But, uh, you know, it's it's easy to miss until the moment where you put uh, two and two together once uh, Albert Finney comes looking for Verna. And then he outright says to Verna in the room adjacent after after Leo leaves when when Verna says, who, what, who, you know, who was that? And he says it was Leo. He's looking for you. I realized how easy it would be to lose track of the names. Mm-hmm. But the Coens keep a grasp on all of it all the time yeah. and manage yes. to, like, you know, know from the audience's perspective when to when to emphasize something and reemphasize it and when to just let it sort of like sit there and and carry on and and that yeah. part with with mink and the dane specifically being lovers they mention like only once in passing and if you're not like really paying attention for it and and you know the the way that they kind of code it within the dialogue of of the the interaction between uh johnny and and tom uh it's it's easy to miss but it is mm-hmm. there the big I mean, the first reference is when Casper says in that first scene, uh, it ain't Mink. Mink is Eddie Dane's boy. Yes. Um, mm. But that could mean all sorts of things. Um, the big uh, tip-off is not that long after, actually, is when he goes when Tom goes to the Shenandoah Club for the first time in the movie. 
and he runs into Mink. And he, I don't remember exactly what Tom says to Mink. He says uh, something about Mink being cozy with Bernie in some way and Steve Buscemi's delivery of, oh, you're just friends, you know, amigos. You know, and he's looking around like skittishly because he doesn't want to, you know. And uh, so that's like, well, why would he react that way if it's if it's anything other than some sort of business partnership or, or friendship from childhood between the Dane and and uh, and Mink? Uh, so that was that was probably that's the first thing that's like this is what's happening, and it's there for you to pick up. I also love that they do that with Casper's family life and sort of like using <laughs> moments with his wife and his son his terrible little kid to tell us more about who he is as a person um it's this like i think now because of you know maybe the sopranos and a bunch of other things it's it's a it's a pretty familiar trope but back then i i really love the idea of this this gangster who uh loves his family right um but is also like cruel um Mm -hmm. loves him deeply loves his son deeply but is is immensely cruel to him (laughs) i'm just laughing because yes it's true because he does strike his son for no good reason later in the movie but that what'd you have for lunch today a hot dog just a hot dog a hot dog and mustard and he starts cracking up like that's the funniest thing you hear that dane my kid is smart as a whip (laughs) like what does intelligence have to do with (laughs) anything that was just said it makes me laugh every time the two pennies immediately following <laughs> right hand. after in his, and he's like, try again, bud. Like, here you go. New penny, so shiny good. new penny. <laughs> it's, it's really, really good. And, you know, uh, John Polito's performance, um, hands down, I think handedly makes him, uh, my favorite character in this movie. No, I can but see I also, that. I also really appreciate these these moments of sort of his his asides with his family um when you get to see more parts of his personality fleshed out um that just make him endearing this is a good point because you know i hadn't quite thought of it on this level but i did say at the beginning that he's the most ethical character and it's also like he's so deluded that he thinks he's living a regular life somehow you <laughs> yes know? yeah yes um and, and 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 that's why he that's why he dies. He he doesn't understand, even though he's ruthless and he's a killer, he doesn't seem to understand what can happen in this life. But it can it can't happen to me. I'm just a regular guy. And we know too that he has this. I don't want to call it quaint. Um, I'll call it quaint. A quaint perspective on his kind of like place in all of this Mm -hmm. we open on him talking about ethics and he's he's really intent on us knowing that this is something that matters to him that's important in terms of the way he does business he lets us know he is a man of character and caliber at least in his mind right right and and even later when he takes over leo's spot and becomes the man who runs things he kind of like says several times, you know, almost as if he's like sort of proverbially wiping his brow. Running things oh, and ain't all like gravy. Running things and ain't all great. Like he's just a regular working guy, right? Like he's. What he a stressful has... day I've had at the office, <laughs> yes. you know. Yeah, yelling at the mayor, right, and mm. and booting him out of his own his own desk. You thought about cutting Bernie loose? 
Can't do it, Tommy. Can't do it. That's sort of why I'm... Uh... Tommy, I don't know where Werner is. Uh-huh. How far she got her hooks into you? That's a hell of a question. If she didn't need you to protect her brother from Johnny Casper, you think she'd still be going on slow carriage rides with you through the park? That's the deal, isn't it? You keep Bernie under wraps till Casper cools down? She's a sure a prickly pair. What's wrong with her wanting her brother taken care of? Nothing. I don't blame her. She sees the anger, which is you, she plays it. She's a grifter, just like her brother. Probably had grifter parents and grifter grandparents, and someday they're each going to spawn little grifter kids. Stop it, Tommy. I don't like to hear my friends run down even by other friends. Friendship's got nothing to do with it. Well, you say you do anything to help your friends like you do anything to kick your enemies. Wrong, Leo. You do things for a reason. Okay, Tom. You know all the angles. Christ better than anybody. But maybe you're wrong about this. You don't know what's in Verna's heart. Leo. If she's such an angel, why are you looking for her at four o'clock in the morning? I uh, might as well bring it up now. The um, So I was, as I said before, I was um, getting into uh, hard-boiled crime fiction at the time. But I hadn't read some of the big ones yet. And among the, the big writers I hadn't read at the time was Dashiell Hammett. You know, he wrote Maltese Falcon and he wrote um, The Thin Man. And mm -hmm. But the two novels, and the Coens have been open about this, and all you got to do is they, they can't really avoid <laughs> admitting this once you read the two books, but Red Harvest, which and the glass key, because the, the two main plot threads of this uh, movie come from those two, which is one, there's a, a lieutenant to a, a gang boss who's having an affair with that gang boss's girlfriend or wife. I don't remember off the top of my head in the glass key, how it goes. And, a guy um, in Red Harvest working two mobs against each other in a corrupt mm -hmm. town, which yeah. that plot was has been lifted was lifted twice before at least right um, by, by Kurosawa for Yojimbo and then and uh, Leone, Leone for official uh, of dollars uh -huh. and the Miller and Miller's Crossing is the first one to put it back in its original setting basically as far as mm. the gang and then Walter Hill did it. Um, in the 90s or early 2000s. I can't remember what the last uh, last man standing with Bruce mm. Willis. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Um, so anyway, and uh, so that's where all this comes from. Um, the 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 whole plot structure. So it, I, I do kind of wonder, it's been a while since I read either of those novels, but I, I do wonder what exactly did they get hung up on plot-wise <laughs> because they're taking main threads <laughs> from from two books. But anyway, they I, I don't... I. You know, there was a time when I was more, uh, uh, more of a, a dick that I would hold that against the Coens. <laughs> um, but I, I do not. Plus, they've been, you know, there's. I remember when No Country for Old Men came out. Um, they, they, they did a, an interview. They didn't interview Cormac McCarthy, but they were interviewed with him, and he said to them. Uh, that his favorite of their films was Miller's Crossing, and he said, well, "And one either Joel or Ethan said, oh, that's just a rip-off job.'" And uh, <laughs> and McCarthy said, "I didn't say it wasn't a rip-off job. I just said it was a great movie." And I mean, you know, the two are not mutually exclusive. Yeah. Totally, and uh, you know, the the fidelity of the No Country adaptation, film-wise, mm -hmm. also, you know, maybe uh, one of these days could be perceived by them as a rip-off job too. Ethan Cohen said, upon winning that Oscar. Uh, for adapted screenplay, I don't know if he said it in his actual speech. He might have, but he said at least in a 
post Oscar interview is like, I didn't do anything to deserve this, but I'm keeping it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good for him. Fair. And again, one of my one of my favorite Coen Brothers movies, No Country. Mm, I think it's yeah. it's it's up there for sure. Um, we haven't talked yet about uh, one of my other favorite performances in the film, which is, of course, uh, John Turturro as Bernie Birnbaum. Amazing. Amazing. I, go ahead. I'm very enthusiastic <laughs> about this. I'm very enthusiastic about it, too. I, I think, you know, I saw this movie for the first time. I was probably 15, 16 years old, uh, sat down and watched it with my dad. I made the decision, not my dad, but it is an excellent dad movie or an excellent movie to watch with dads. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like they would like this one a lot if they haven't seen it anyone out there with a dad <laughs> give it a but... look people with dads <laughs> people with dads, with dads should watch this out. movie uh but you know that the the scene when they first go out to miller's crossing when mm-hmm. they're when they're you know uh ostensibly gonna whack bernie was one of those moments where at the time i i remember thinking like this is the best acting i've ever seen in a movie ever mm-hmm. you know like like whatever yes, yeah. Totoro's doing here like i i have never seen something that has made me this tense that has like caught me off guard in this way and he's like that throughout the movie he goes he ebbs and flows from being just like completely despicable to being uh so pitiful right back to being despicable again at any given moment you want him to die but also don't want to see him die it's it's uh it's a really incredible performance when he finally does die i'm i'm okay with it fully (laughs) on board with him dying but but you know that that's a such a great scene because i hated him from from the beginning he's a terrible Mm -hmm. person uh and you know uh but that you know that first scene with him uh and um and i'll get back to the miller's crossing scene but the scene in tom's uh, apartment mm-hmm. <laughs> when he's just this smarmy little shit and and he says this thing to tom about verna his her his sister uh, he said uh she even tried to teach me a thing or two about bed artistry can you believe that my own sister some uh crock pot idea about saving me from my friends she's a sick twist mm. and then I, I i know the movie pretty well incidentally and then tom says she speaks highly of you and he says yeah we stick by your family and also i don't know i don't know if that i, I don't know if i'm supposed to believe that about verna that she did that uh I, I i don't know if he's lying through his teeth or if she actually did that you never there's no other mention of it you there's no way of knowing what would his motive be for lying i don't know what that would be either but anyway uh but that he's so great in that scene and he's so hateful and then, but in the Miller's Crossing scene, you feel Tom's like, I, he's, I've never killed anybody before. Yes, I work with killers and I, you know, I hear, I have little sympathy for people when I hear that they've died, but I can't do this. And so you feel the sympathy for Tom and Bernie because, you know, who wants to get shot in the woods, you know, you, in the terror. Like a dumb animal. Like, <laughs> yeah. You can't say it's overacting because how how would you act, you know, in the, in a in a situation like that? How would you be? And you can't say I wouldn't do it like that. That's ridic- that's a ridiculous uh, approach, and I've seen that at times. And I just feel like it's it's an amazing, extreme, exhausting looking performance. That scene. The thing I love about that scene is that, and maybe this is you know coming from. Uh, being very firmly planted in my disdain for Bernie um, from the jump. But I 
I read that scene so subjectively as as Tom. Like I, yeah, I, no, I, I, do. Im- I do too. It mm-hmm. immediately put me in his shoes. And before he even said the words, like I've never killed anyone, I knew it. I knew it because I could yeah, feel right. how he was feeling looking at that's, that is, that's what you see. That's what you feel when you are about to kill someone. If you've never done it before. When, right? when, when they hand them, I don't know if it's Tic Tac or uh Frankie hands him the gun. It's right there. It's right there. And he's like, what? Yes. Me? But he doesn't say it. You just see it in Gabriel Byrne's face, which is in a movie that has so many big performances is the smallest performance in the movie. And his face doesn't do a hell of a lot. Uh, but you see it. You somehow see it. I don't yes. know. how. I don't know how he does it because he doesn't. He does so little in that move in that performance, uh, Gabriel Byrne. But you see it in that moment. Like, I've never killed anyone and I don't think I can do this. Yeah. And the thing that I really appreciate about the climax of that scene is despite knowing and feeling very, very uh, intensely that there was hesitation and fear on Tom's part to do the act, I still was teetering back and forth between whether or not it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. There's part of oh, me yeah. that thought mm-hmm. like, is he, is he disgusted by Bernie? Is this, is this groveling actually the thing that's going to, cause him to shoot him like is that going to be like he just can't handle it and he wants to he wants to put him out of his misery and that's that's what does it and the fact that he you know he doesn't spoiler is is i think it's not incidental to the plot it isn't incidental to the feeling of that scene right like yeah and one thing i noticed watching it again yesterday is you know it's a famous scene It's, it's one of the two most famous scenes in the movie and there's one we haven't brought up that I assume we're going to get to. Well, mm-hmm. three, I would say. But uh, <laughs> one is maybe more famous to me than the rest of the world. But uh, anyway, um, he uh, it's de- when it's described, even when it's described favorably, um, they talk about how long it goes on. And I was watching it yesterday, and I was like, this actually doesn't last as long as you think it does. It's just the intensity of it seems to stretch it out. It's just so psychically terrorizing. Mm-hmm. It's it's it really does, you know, it really does feel like it's going on for a long time. And the other thing that I think that adds to the I'll say the laboriousness of that scene potentially is he's repeating himself over yeah. and over and over again. And the thing that I thought is I thought about how when when I'm really sad, when I'm really sobbing like my heart out, um I repeat things like I will I will say a phrase in my head if I'm like crying about like, you know, a death in my family or if I've I'm upset about something that's happened. Like I will repeat myself in in my head or sometimes out loud. And that's what you do. That's like a very human thing to do when you are reduced to this like base state. He's plus he's begging and there's only so much you can say when you're begging. He has nothing to offer Tom really. All he can all he can do is plead to the conscience that he hopes Tom has that he himself does not have. Yeah, I, I had built that scene up in my head too. You know, it, it's been a while since I've seen it, and, and when we were rewatching it for this, I, I had kind of uh, teased before we started it. You know, to to Carly as it was her first time. Like, there's there's a scene in this movie that's very famous, and and mm. you'll you'll know it when you see it because it's it's very powerful. Um, and I had expected it to go on longer too. And after it played out, I almost kind of like looked over 
at at my uh, companion in the audience, you know, over at Carly and was like waiting for her reaction because I was like that that wasn't as big as it was the first time for me. I wonder if, if I overplayed it, I wonder if I like oversold. I this think moment. that too. And I think that too. And I recommend things, uh, <laughs> never, never, uh, recommend things and then watch it with the person you, uh, yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. Well, you watch the person more than you watch the movie at that right. point and, right. and just hope that their reaction is sound. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you mentioned bill, the, the kind of like smallness and subtlety of Gabriel Burns performance here too. And, uh, obviously that's, that's kind of by necessity. I think we should talk a little bit mm-hmm. about, about Tom Reagan and, and how sort of impenetrable his motivations can feel throughout the film. Um, he's a very enigmatic character, not, not unlike some others in, in the Cohen's body of work, but, uh, you know, by the end of this movie, I, I was delighted when when we finished it all and we got to the end and he doesn't wind up back in Leo's good graces. He doesn't wind up with Verna. Uh, well, he you know, is he's, back in Leo's good graces, but he rejects those good graces. He rejects the good graces. Thank you. Yes, that is that is a necessary correction. Um, he pays off his debts, but mm-hmm. goes right back to gambling. You know, putting <laughs> money squarely back on on some some horses. Uh, and and you know, Carly said to me, "Why did he do any of this?" You know, if not for those things, what was the motivation for this? I mean, there, there's all sorts of ways to read it. And there's a reading of it. I don't know how popular it is. Um, this isn't my reading of it. <laughs> but it, but I, I'm not rejecting it as like, if you think this, you're wrong. Because I was watching it yesterday and I was like, well, if this is how you take the movie, there's nothing in it to specifically refute it. Which is that Tom is also gay um, and is in love with Leo. Like I say, that's not how I feel when I watch it. But there was a moment um, in the scene in the scene when Verna goes to see him after Leo's kicked them both out, and they're talking. And I don't remember the exact lines, but Verna says something about she and Tom being in love, and Tom just looks at her, and he doesn't say anything. And that's the end of the scene. And I'm like, well, I'm not in love with you. That could be that could be read that way. But then at the same time, you're like, well, how many gay monsters are in this fucking town? You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> a good question. But but it's like I say, there's nothing in the movie to actually reject that reading. But I, I take, I guess, a more simple reading, uh, which is the, the one that works for me best, which is simply that there's a backstory to Tom and Leo that goes back a long way. And Tom is fiercely loyal to Leo and thinks of him as a, like a father figure. And there's a certain thing that he and he will if if they split and 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 Tom goes to him, you know, straight ahead. Listen, this is how I know uh, Verna can't be Verna can't be trusted. And he just lays it on the table because I'm, I'm having an affair with her. And if Leo can't accept that and forgive me, then I don't want back in. But I will do what I can to take Casper out so that Leo is, you know, safe. And that's, right. that's just my simple re- reading, but there is an, uh, you have to have, you have to imagine certain things about their past, but you know, that's not, you know, you have to imagine it for any reading of, of that relationship and those mm-hmm. motivations. So that's the one that I like. That's the one that works for me. That's the one I've always had, but it is, it is a mystery. You don't know. It's, you know, that's why they call it ambiguity, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and and you 
said earlier, you know, you kind of balked at the the phrase straightforward uh, in in regards to like the telling of the story and or into, you know, in in the sense of any performance. Uh, but this story, you know, this film for how windy the plot is, is one of the more just kind of straightforward sort of narratives that the Coen brothers have ever yeah. made. And, and interestingly, you know, putting this incredibly enigmatic figure at the center of it, um, it you you begin to latch on to other people's uh reasoning for for his his motivations throughout the movie you know there's that moment where where verna kind of comes to him and sort of insists like why won't you just admit that the reason for all of this is because you're jealous that i'm mm-hmm. with leo you know that, yeah. that that you want me you know the the the, the basest uh motivation there's ever been which is just yeah. that you you want to be with me um and and you you begin to believe those people who are telling these stories mm-hmm. around tom because uh, because otherwise it doesn't make a ton of sense. Uh, the other thing, you know, that I find, find especially interesting about Tom and the mystery behind him is that he seems at the end, like, I don't think he gives a shit about Verna. Like no. he, he doesn't. When, when, when he, when he like leaving Bernie's graves has nice turnout, like Jesus Christ, <laughs> that's cold. Like yeah. there's no, just walk past her. <laughs> say that i you know and it's just weird it's she she thought that he loved her and he does not love her and there's that scene near the end in the doorway when she's going to shoot him because she thinks he's killed he killed bernie well she hadn't yet she has the gun you know against him and she can't do it and he says it's not easy is it and that seems so tender but also like mocking I don't like I said before. You, he does almost nothing with his face. It's his. He was born with this face, and look what it can do just by <laughs> being on a big screen. You know. I found myself sort of like oscillating between, as Aaron said, all these different th- reasons, motivations that the movie was offering us, and grafting, you know, Tom onto them. So at first, I was like, okay, he's doing it. He's doing what he's doing to get back at Leo. Okay, he's doing what he's doing because he loves Verna and he wants to sort of like get her and Bernie out of this. Oh, he's doing what he's doing because he really does uh, want to help Leo out. Like, you know, there are all these all these different. Um, you move through all of these different perspectives um, for where he could be coming from. But the thing that I think is true about the reading that you offered at the beginning, which I too don't agree with that, that they were lovers. But one thing that I think is true from that is that Tom very clearly loves Leo. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Mm -hmm. And it's the only person he loves. Mm -hmm. Like he does not love anyone else in the film. He feels no No. loyalty towards anyone else. Um, And you could argue that the end of the film, when he sort of rejects coming back into his, into his bosom and, and joining his crew again is not a refutation of his love, but more an assertion of it that like, right, he's gone through all of this for him. He's also he, disappointed in Leo. I think he's disappointed that, in Leo. Yes. Not, not justifiably, I would say, but he is disappointed that Leo said, I, couldn't say, well, I'm glad you were honest with me about Verna. Now what do we do? Which is not a reasonable thing to expect, but I it feels like that's what he expected Leo to, to do. He's like, well, if you're not going to be as loyal to me as I am to you, then we're, we're quits. But I'm going to, my last thing before I, you know, hitch a ride out of town is to take down Johnny Casper. 
Rogue Daniels is dead. Gee, that's tough. Thank God, hysterical. All in all, not a bad guy. If looks, brains, and personality don't count. You better hope they don't. Yeah, well, we're none of us the saint I hear your brother is. Who killed him? Leo thinks Casper did. But you know better. I do now. You see, Casper just tried to buy me into fixing his tiff with Leo, which he'd hardly do if he was waging war. So I figure you killed him, Angel. You were Saint Bernard. You think I murdered someone? Come on, Tom. You know me a little. Nobody knows anybody. Not that well. One of the other elements of Tom, of Gabriel Byrne's character, uh, is his tendency to get punched in the face and mm-hmm. lose his hat. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> up, in, up, up until the very end. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. there's a, there's even, you know, a, yet another scene uh, post-coitally with, with Verna um, that I think is is really interesting where Tom tells the story of of losing his hat and then mm-hmm. you know kind of blowing away in in the woods not unlike the the image that we see at the beginning during mm-hmm. the title um and and Verno takes the opportunity to seek some sort of connection you know she thinks that Tom mm-hmm. is like opening up to her a little bit and she tries to finish the dream and she's like sure you know you chased after it and yeah, you know, when you found it, it wasn't a hat anymore. It was something magnificent or, or something mm-hmm. like that. Like, no. <laughs> and then he was like, no, that's that's not what happened. I, I didn't chase after my hat. There's there's nothing more foolish than a man chasing his hat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there is a, uh, an easy symbolism to be read into to that, though, which I don't even think was unintentional. And I don't even, you know, it's easy symbolism. But as long as you don't say it, it's fine. You know, which is that when his hat gets knocked off, he's losing control of the situation, whatever situation mm-hmm. he's in. And as long as you just like think it in your to yourself and, and don't like write a paper about it, then uh, <laughs> then it works. You know, there are a couple of other scenes, too, when other people's hats go flying. Um, and I'm thinking specifically of the, the big shootout when the police all sort of. Uh, rain fire down upon some like warehouse mm. or something. It's one of the, their one of their clubs yeah. with, with uh, Sam Raimi's Sam cameo. Raimi. Sam Raimi as maybe the most hateful person in the whole movie. Actually, yeah. if you think about well, it. Well, well, <laughs> is it is it the club or it's it's it's, it's called like Aaron's something. Sons Sons of Aaron. Sons of Aaron. Unless yeah. you're thinking of a different scene when they throw the, like the Molotov cocktail through the window. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's some yes. sort of club that they're it's a, it's, it's oh, one okay. of Leo's clubs. Yeah. It's one of Leo's clubs. Okay. There was, there's this, you know, there's a, a an incredible, um, melee of, of fire and, uh, and bullets flying. And, there's a lone hat that flies across mm-hmm. the yeah the scene. yeah a guy goes yeah a guy goes running uh, the guy who who broke the window and threw in the Molotov cocktail yes. he goes running his hat comes flying off yeah mm-hmm. yes and without me thinking it but now as you're as you're saying it I'm like oh that is what I was feeling like when I saw the hat I was like oh fuck like <laughs> I I had that sense of like <laughs> things are about to come apart and and you know and break at the seams you know this might be a good time to get into the two other scenes that haven't come up yes um the two most violent scenes and if the opening credits hadn't already gotten me all on board the danny boy scene just absolutely like i'm sitting there in the theater like what am i watching like i and i you know i i i come from uh uh, 
parents, my dad was, I don't know if he was a hundred percent Irish, but he was pretty close. Uh, and my mom had, um, like Irish and Scottish and so forth. And so I knew, and it's not like Danny boy's an obscure song or anything, but I had, <laughs> I, I, I had, I, I, I was aware of my Irish blood and that song, even though it's a cliche and a lot of Irish people probably hate it. I don't hate it. I, I still think it's a beautiful song. And hearing that song set against this beautifully filmed and edited uh, action scene, essentially, and that is extremely violent. I I was in love. I was I was in love. Uh, the Coen Brothers are my favorite living filmmakers. I mean, they're tied with like a few others, to be honest, but they're the most important to me. Like, I feel like I am on their wavelength in a way that I'm not with a lot of filmmakers. They don't do a lot of cool scenes. You know, they don't do things like the Danny boy scene very often, but that's a fucking cool scene. It's extremely cool. (laughs) It is so fucking cool. And, and Albert Finney is just such a, badass in that scene so much of a badass they make him seem almost indestructible they do like mm-hmm. you see you see bullets go through the mattress when he's under the bed and assume that he's going to get hit he jumps out of a window and then when he's in the street he's just you know pacing he's ready to very, go and, very and nonchalantly the, and yeah and, and the way they build the song because after he shoots the guy up from the yard through the window and the guy is just like a, a puppet on a string with bullets just riddling his body um and then the the song swells as the other car comes the car comes around the corner to fire at him and he turns and just starts unloading him it's the coolest uh i can't i can't begin to tell you how vibrating i was <laughs> how much i was vibrating in my seat in the movie theater during that you see quite clearly why Leo's in charge. He has mm-hmm. instincts. He's smart. Yes. He's he's an artist with a Thompson, as they say, <laughs> right. immediately following. Yep. Um, but up until that point, we didn't have a lot of evidence other than, you know, he's a man with a strong will. Right. But we we kind of get we get a lot of indications that he's. He's leading with his heart. He's being kind of foolish. He's not listening to his right hand man anymore. He's making these right. sort of like kind of silly decisions. Mm-hmm. And so we don't get, I didn't at least, I, I understood his character to be, as I said, one with a very strong will. And sometimes that's all you need to lead. But I still wasn't convinced of his capacity. Mm-hmm. And then this scene, and you're like, oh, that's why he's in charge. That is why he runs shit. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's the most important character scene for maybe well maybe not the most but it's definitely it's the character scene as well as being just completely awesome. And Leo still has his uh, cigar, cigar in his pocket where he where you know he he gets to put it back in his mouth. He's in a silk robe. He's in the a whole silk robe. Time. It, no, it's <laughs> it's perfect. And like you said, Bill, it's such a great character scene for Albert Finney. But but it's also you know I think by extension, a character scene for Tom as well, because that scene completely undermines Tom's entire assessment of Leo and his foolishness of his incapacity to kind of defend a little bit. Like it, it, to me, it seems a little bit like, you know, Tom is interesting in this way where he is sort of, you know, playing that 4d chess and able to see a lot of the different machinations and, and things going on. But he's also like, 
a character who can't seem to apply that same level of of foresight to his gambling problem or to any of his right. you know monetary well, that's, issues. No, that's true. I don't I don't think that uh, Tom wouldn't have expected Leo to be able to handle that situation. I think because that that's why he's loyal to him. But you're right that Tom is uh, somewhat deluded in about himself uh obviously the gambling is the big like as you say uh it's that's the big evidence that tom is not the chess master he believes himself to be and that's another thing i want to say and this will get to the other scene i wanted to bring up is i think the smartest character in the whole movie is not tom it's the dane it's just the dane has bet on the wrong horse i think if if johnny was as smart as Leo, then Tom and Leo would be dead at the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and I think J. E. Freeman is magnificent. Um, the 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 scene I'm taking a long time to get to is the scene where he dies, where he's killed, which is yeah. the most insane scene in the film. Um, and it's one of my favorites. Um, he knows that Tom is lying. He's known the whole time. He'd never doubted it for a, a single second. Casper is just so enamored by what the vibe Tom gives off of intelligence, I guess, which I imagine the Dane is not so chatty as Tom is, you know, (laughs) so he gets enamored by this education and this, you know, whatever he, Johnny takes it to be so that um, while the Dane is choking Tommy and you have drop Johnson screaming, the movie goes absolutely bug fuck for like three or four minutes <laughs> it's one of the, like the, the three big things for me and i mean i love the whole thing top to bottom but the three big things for me are the opening into the credits and the credits danny boy and that like they they're able to they they have the the cohen's have the best instincts they trust their instincts like whatever we're gonna whatever we think is right is going to work and they're pretty much always right and they have a real way with violence they they have a knack for violence on screen um, that few others have in my opinion they can make it funny they can make it terrifying they can make it absolutely grotesque and weird and and I, and in this one, it's it's almost like you're on another planet for for a little bit. It's like what what am I what am I looking at? I was like sort of antagonized by by the Dane for most of the film because I'm I'm you know set to sort of sympathize with the protagonist, of course. And I was like, oh, he doesn't like him. Like, come on, man, whatever. Um, but it was that scene where I realized, as you say, that he is the smartest person in the whole movie, and that. And that he is also doing the thing that Tom thinks he's doing. Mm-hmm. He has been like one step ahead yeah. of him every time and has been doing that 4D chess. Mm-hmm. And the thing that sells him out is that his boss isn't loyal to him the way that Leo is ultimately loyal to Tom. And that's why he dies. And his bo- boss isn't as smart. His boss, his is boss a, isn't as smart. He's, he's an idiot. His boss is an idiot. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I thought, um, and we can get into this film in a moment. Um, I thought when I, when we were watching Barton Fink, and there's that scene when Michael Lerner's character flips to Polito's character, who's his sort of like right hand stooge, and makes him kiss the feet mm-hmm. of Barton. I thought about that scene of betrayal between mm. John Polito and uh, and Eddie Dane. I just there's there are some nice parallels between yeah. their 
that yeah. that I picked up and I was only able to appreciate because I watched those two films so close together. And talk about great character names. John Polito's character in uh, Barton Fink is Lou Breeze. Lou, Lou Breeze. Breeze. If I come up, if I written, a, <laughs> if I come up with that name, I would die happy. That's, that's yes. A great name. Uh, I think that's as good a segue as any to get into uh, our other film, Barton Fink. Sneak into an R-rated movie. Let's call Barton Fink. I can't. I told my dad I'd wait for him. Barton Fink. Barton Fink. Barton Fink. So I will say, you know, maybe as the odd man out here, uh, I think that I prefer Barton Fink. Uh, Barton Fink, I think, still stands as probably uh, my favorite Coen Brothers movie. I, I had not seen it for a while until we rewatched it for this episode um, was worried that maybe with some distance rewatching it might, might uh, knock it down a couple of, of levels in terms of my rating. How foolish you must feel now. How foolish I felt after watching it again um, and having it blow me away uh, all, all over again, exactly with the same power and force as it did those first uh, two, three times I I had seen it Um, because it is, an incredible follow-up and as you already mentioned bill like how this is something that you just managed to kind of crank out in three weeks uh while you're struggling to write is beyond me like ima- yeah. imagine <laughs> what, what what a problem to have uh <laughs> I, I it's infuriating in a way you know i i will say the one thing I think that makes this distinct, obviously, you know, uh, Barry Sonnenfeld behind mm-hmm. the camera as DP for the Coen brothers first three films, mm-hmm. um, a director in his own right at this point has stepped away to do the Adams family movies. Um, we'll go on to do men in all black. kinds of men in black, get right. shorty, what have you. So this is really their first partnership with the great, uh, Roger Deakins, mm-hmm. who is, is one of the greatest, uh, living, cinematographers Mm -hmm. um and this movie has such an incredible aesthetic and look and the way that it's lensed is so uh so haunting sometimes Mm -hmm. it's 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 just brilliant it's it's a a much more kind of languid pace sometimes up until a couple of specific moments and that interiority of the psyche is all over the place if Mm -hmm. uh (laughs) if if miller's crossing is a story about the imperviousness of the irish psyche Barton Fink is a, a tale of externalizing uh, Jewish neuroses, you know, mm-hmm. like that—that yeah. that is the distinction between the two, I think. And John Turturro, again, delivering probably his career best performance here. Let's start with him, because I, I wanted to say, I was thinking about this, that he might be the most underrated actor working today. He, because you look at, you know, you look at what he does in Miller's Crossing and then here, just start there. Completely different performances, completely in, completely unique, and and striking and and riveting performances. And before Miller's Crossing, he look at what he did and do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And before yeah. that, before that, Five Corners. I don't know if you guys have seen that one. Um, check it out. It's it's quite something. He's just like I just take. I feel like I've been taking him for granted. And I was watch when I was watching Miller's Crossing yesterday. I was like this is one of the best performances I've ever seen in my life. And I remember I watched Barton Fink, as I told you, not that long ago before we even, we planned this. And it's 
like it's not clearly not two different actors doing it, but it's it's you you don't see like the same ticks. You don't see any like well this is he leans on this crutch or anything like that. He doesn't do that, and he's just right on the money, just dead on the money every time. When we were watching Barton Fink the other night, I I turned to Aaron and I said, I wish these two films had been the first thing I had ever seen John Turturro in mm-hmm. because. I admittedly, and this is again, if we're on, you know, uh, I'm about to say the cursed words out loud film Twitter. Um, <laughs> like, I like, I don't think I could admit what I'm about to say um, without getting, you know, this is like, being recorded, right? Yes. It's fine. They'll come after me at some point. No, I'm not that important. It's fine. No one cares. Um, but I feel like I wouldn't be able to say what I'm about to say, which is that I, I like John Turturro. I've always thought of as like a fine actor. And yet, after Miller's Crossing and then going into Barton Fink, I was like, how did I miss this? Like, how did I miss that this is what he's capable of? Yeah. And it's not that he hasn't done other great performances, but they're not like this in my mind. Well, well what's happened to him, and I, this is not a judgment by me of him in any way, shape, or form, but what's happened to him is the same thing that's happened to a lot of great actors of who are not like leading men types where they basically they're so unusual that they um basically end up um getting offered like uh character actor roles in big movies um Mm -hmm. because he's been in a couple transformers he's still done a lot of odd things and he you know but um he the same the same thing happened to john malkovich who's one of my favorite actors right right um and I, i you know I, I, I have no problem with them cashing paychecks. I truly do not. But that's it, it happens to a lot of a lot of people. And he, you know, has wound up in a bunch of comedies, too. You know, he's in these Transformers. And I, I was looking at his filmography because I, I kind of had the suspicion. I'm like, I don't think he's had like a really, uh, you know, kind of transcendent role in maybe a 20 while. years. A you know, while, like yeah. and, and all, most of them are with the Coen brothers, you know, mm-hmm. Brother Where Art Thou, Big Lebowski, what have you. Um, but his relationship with uh, with Happy Madison Productions and Adam Sandler, he's been in in like almost every Adam Sandler movie in some bit part since like Anger Management, really? uh, or, or Mister or Mister. Yeah. Oh, I remember him. I remember him in um, the the he's a butler. Yeah, he's one. in Mister Deeds. Yeah, where, oh, where he's the, the sneaky yeah. butler. Because uh, Buscemi but involved with them too. That's yeah, right, exactly. That's right. But you know, he's in he's in a lot of them. He's in stuff as as recently as like uh, the Ridiculous Six and oh, uh, the really? other Netflix ones that that Sandler's been doing. And and I was like, uh, yeah, kind of amazed to see you know how how consistently he's been working, but how most of the movies he's doing are these sort of bit parts and either big budget movies like that or in in comedies, just you know doing something uh, riffing for the camera. And it, it is kind of a disappointment because you see him in something like Barton Fink, and he's just so magnificent so captivating yeah. and so perfect in that mm-hmm. role like obviously it was written with him in mind um likewise yeah. mm-hmm. with uh with uh charlie meadows uh played by john goodman who was also top of mind for for the cohen's in this film as well who gives i think also his best performance my of favorite. his entire yeah. career yeah but getting you know right into it here you know barton fink obviously like we said comes about right in the middle of this uh this case of writer's block on behalf of joel and ethan cohen the movie itself, obviously, uh, is sort of a, a meta commentary on that that same 
plight. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, a, a, yeah. a playwright gets some success, moves to Hollywood to uh, to write a, a, a B picture, as it's reiterated time and time again. You know, this uh, this beery wrestling picture, um, and and gets stuck himself. You know, has 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 these sort of competing impulses of telling the stories of the common man, you know, the, the honest sort of theater and, and, and Hollywood, um, while also cashing his paychecks. Um, and it's of course not a far stretch to see all the ways in which these things were, uh, top of mind and anxieties that were very prominent in, in the Cohen's uh, psyche as well. Yeah. I, I think that this movie, um, along with the serious man is probably their most complex, there's so much going on in this movie um, from the cultural references and, and the Coen brothers uh, downplayed it and probably I, I'm sure they're, I'm sure they're since completely sincere about it, but um, that they, an audience member shouldn't make too much of this sort of thing. But, you know, Barton Fink is very loosely based on the playwright Clifford Odets, mm-hmm. who wrote Waiting for Lefty. He was a, like a, a socialist uh, playwright in the uh, 30s and 40s. John Mahoney's character, W.P. Mayhew, is loosely based, less loosely based, although the whole having someone else write his books for him is absolutely mm-hmm. not true, but um, based on Faulkner. Yeah. And in fact, uh, in the scene where Barton goes to the bungalow, um, to meet Mayhew yep. and they have the title of the movie he's working on, on it. And it says slave ship. I don't know if you saw, but William Faulkner actually uh, worked on a movie called slave ship in the thirties. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it starred, uh, starred Beery in it. William Beery. Did it? The, the, oh, did yeah, it? I, did. Oh, wow. I, did. I didn't catch that. Yeah. Uh, that's funny. Um, anyway, so they, they have all this stuff going on and there's, you know, there's a critique of a certain kind of pompous uh, artist um, and I, you know, I think our politics, you, you two and my politics diverge somewhat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, yes, that's true. But, um, but so I, I, I don't say this to like start a, a fight or, no, or, or nothing. I ain't looking for no trouble, but um, <laughs> there is, uh, there seems to be, well, there is, and whether it mattered, matters to the Coens, which direction it's coming from or not, I couldn't quite say, but it, it seems like a critique of a of a certain um, self righteous leftist uh, yes, uh, writer, completely. and and yeah. they've criticized American socialism in other movies, most prominently in Hail Caesar, yeah. which is also uh, takes place at Capitol Pictures, um, and there's a little bit in Inside Lone Davis, although I think that's more of a throwaway joke than a critique of anything. But hmm. they're critiquing this kind of artist, but are they critiquing the politics? And I, I don't think there's evidence that they are necessarily. They're critiquing a certain approach to those politics. But I don't know. I, I you know, who, I don't know. They don't say, which I appreciate. I like that they don't say. Politics, you know, in terms of our politics differing one way or another from each other's, I wholeheartedly agree with you, um, Bill. I think this is absolutely skewering a certain kind of very specifically a leftist. Um, and mm. I, I mentioned this to Aaron because this is often a debate that comes up on the left, which is like this insistence on theory, right. And reading theory mm-hmm. and a different perspective, which just says, no, you don't need 
to read theory to build solidarity among a group of people. Like you need yeah. a common desire for change. Mm-hmm. And it is a it's a it's a tiresome argument that happens on a quotidian basis uh, on the left. And and I did not miss it for a second um, because that is absolutely what they're talking about. And mm-hmm. I, again, I don't think it's necessarily critiquing the politics, as you say, but but Barton Fink's posture yeah, and right. and his remove from the people that he is claiming to want to give voice to. Right. And that there, is something that I think is universal across a, across time. Yeah, the it's the the self-importance and the humorlessness of him, you know, that early scene when he's at the restaurant after Bear Ruined Choirs uh, premiered and he's talking to I guess his agent uh, Garland and he gives he says listen they want you in hollywood to write movies and you know you can make a lot of money and you can write you know maybe write some good stuff and and he says the common man will still be here when you get back who knows maybe even have some uh in hollywood and barton says that's a rationalization garland he says barton was a joke (laughs) right (laughs) yes and this comes up all the time online, right? There are all these conversations that take place that, you know, sort of get blown out of proportion because there is a self-seriousness of, of a certain political cohort that I think prevents prevents a certain amount of connection to other mm-hmm. humans mm-hmm. that is counter to their political desires, ultimately, right. in my which mind. Is, which is the whole, which is obviously the whole relationship between him and Charlie. Yes. Yeah. But then... What happens with Charlie is like, well, what are, what are they getting at with this? I I, uh, I don't know if you have a th- if you guys have thoughts about how that ties into what we've just been talking about. But I'll be honest, I don't know that. Well, I mean, I do. I mean, he says it in the in the big final scene he has with Barton. But the fact that he's a serial killer and po- possibly Satan, you know, what is that? You know, I, I'd rather not have an explanation to a David Lynch film. I'd rather, I'd rather just <laughs> yep. let it wash over me. And that's kind of yep. how I feel about certain parts of this is like, I don't know that I have a theory behind this, but I like it. <laughs> I know I like it. Yeah. There is a certain amount of ambiguity that I think adds to the intensity of the film for sure. Yeah. And I, and I was worried, you know, like I said, that, that, that inscrutability that I found so fascinating about it when I was younger and maybe a more pretentious, you know, contrarian kind of movie watcher mm-hmm. would be the thing that would have made it sour for me this time. But I, I actually think that it's only made it, uh, made it better as I watched it. And, and, you know, like you said, to, to try to interpret it and have a, a definitive answer to to each component of the storytelling and of the the filmmaking uh is a is sort of counter to the point with a david lynch movie it's counter to the point with this movie as well yeah. and i think that it's open-endedness uh makes it makes it great you know that that it can it can be interpreted so many different ways but um i i will just you know as a, a third party here also say that I agree with you wholeheartedly bill with this assessment of a, a particular kind of like left politics and the sort of like apathy um, and, uh, and posturing, you know, that, mm. that it does, you know, trying to be populist while also sort of being at a remove and, and distancing itself from the, the people that it claims to, uh, to try to incorporate into its movement. I think that that's a universal thing today. I think it was something that was, probably prominent, uh, you know, in the the waning uh, Bush years, Bush senior years here into the Clinton administration when this when this film was uh, being produced. 
Um, and also, you know, the, the time period that it's reflecting as well. There's certainly uh, an, an interpretation of this movie that is about sort of the more uh, liberal kind of left wing uh, apathy or ambivalence towards uh, a rising fascism of the of the moment well yeah well. there's well there's that too that's the other uh, you know the the whole uh the nazi uh, aspect uh, mm-hmm. to this movie um and the two uh you know the the cone brothers are actually well i would i won't make a blanket statement but um they have portrayed cops very positively in several of their movies fargo they obviously uh, very primarily in this one not so much yeah. but uh <laughs> and i can't remember both of their names but one of them is named deutsch yeah and, and uh, mastronati i think is the other Italian. one so so yeah so there you go and um and they're both uh, anti-semitic and um when meadows aka uh madman munt puts the shotgun to deutsch's head he says heil hitler and it's almost like i mean it's almost like it, it's one of the creepiest things I've ever like him just saying that out of the blue, even though it's not out of the blue, if you've been watching the movie, mm-hmm. but it's still just the way Goodman delivers that line. It's like, it's just your blood runs cold. And it's, so there's that underlying all of this too. And there's Litnik <laughs> getting, you know, uh, the, the costume department, getting himself a, a German <laughs> a, or a, a general's uniform. Yeah. Like there's all this stuff <laughs> going on underneath this movie. That's every, and it will, it's underneath it. And then it'll pop its head up every so often mm-hmm. and just give you a jolt. Um, one other funny little thing that I, I noticed too, um, Meadows, Char- Charlie, uh, John Goodman's character, uh, when he's talking with Barton in one of their initial meetings about him working in the pictures uh, when they're sharing a drink and saying that he's doing a, a wrestling movie with, with mm-hmm. Beery, uh, Meadows says that he's a, a fan of Jack Oakey, yeah. who plays a the... Stitch Oakey. Yes, he, yes, and he he plays the uh, Mussolini character in Chaplin's The Great Dictator. Oh, that's right, that's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, and um, you, you know they had to be thinking about that. Of course, Absolutely. they had of course to be thinking were. about that. Yeah, but you know, along with I think being a, a target at uh, a particular kind of arrogant liberal elite artist and also you know sort of a political actor um this is a a really brilliant send-up of hollywood in the studio system as well you know more topically here um and michael lerner you know academy academy award nominated michael lerner for this role um is so so good so funny it's so funny and we didn't talk about it miller's crossing and i won't go back to that movie because there's still so much but like all of their movies pretty much even the the non comedies have a, a lot of comedy in them, a lot mm-hmm. of humor. Yes. And and Jack Lipnick's first scene, Michael Lerner's first scene, he is just rolling through that dialogue. Just and his his every time I watch it now, I I look at his hands. He's doing so much with his hands. He he does this one thing at one point where he says, "But seriously, Bart." And he does this little thing with his his fingers <laughs> like together, and then it's for like a second, and and it's just it, it's an amazing, hilarious performance. I I I wish he'd won that Oscar. That would have been awesome. He's incredible in this movie, and I um you know if we're talking again about excess, the thing that I love about his character and the way that he he portrays him is that this man is nothing but 
excess. He is Mm -hmm. like excess in expression. He's excess in his sort of like indulgence of, of feelings and his, he, he makes, you know, everything's a currency for him. Right. And, and he really shows us the, the business of Hollywood and the kind of like feverish appetite for Mm -hmm. making something, but it's not this like pure act that we are contrasted you know, against with sort of Barton's desire to make something and his, he's sort of more austere and, and sincere about it. This hunger that, um, that Michael Lerner's character has is just, it's the churn of that system, right? Of like, we got to make a thing and I don't, it's a B movie, but but it's going to do great. And, but he's also delusional um, (laughs) because he thinks that's not what he's doing. He pretends that's not what he's doing. And then, and then, you know, Barton Fink made make uh, writes uh, the Burly Man, and it's, it looks like it's about two hundred pages, which is very long for a script, and <laughs> and uh, it doesn't. And he's like, "This is nonsense. This is this is pompous nonsense." And but that's what he claimed to have wanted, sort of in a in different words. But that's what he claimed to have wanted from Barton Fink. And it it exposes that kind of like aesthetic loyalty that Hollywood has to art making, right? To to this idea of of making real art. We've we sort of say that that's what Hollywood is there to do and that's what movies are, that's what cinema capital C is, and we see it to be like a truly hollow exercise that it's yeah. not actually what they're there to do. But you do I mean, they made so many great movies though under that system. Mm-hmm. There's that too. Yes. Yep. Of course. I mean, there's of course. A, a, like thousands, maybe, I, I don't know, a lot of just absolutely fantastic movies under that system that, you know, but those, you know, Lipnick was the guy. <laughs> and there were others who were, you know, you could look into, you know, I, I wrote a, uh, one of my favorite uh, people from that era is Val Luton. And I, uh, I wrote a piece about him recently. But anyway, he uh, was hired by RKO to produce horror films which was not he had no interest in but it was the job he was given to do and he made nine spectacular horror movies um and he cashed that in to make a couple of things that were more his speed that people don't remember which doesn't mean they're bad i haven't seen them but but um under this system and he got betrayed valutin did up and down he was treated like shit by people who should have been loyal to him but these movies exist and they were made in under that system and somehow it finds a way sometimes. Yeah. That's not to say that the, and I'm certainly not arguing that beautiful art wasn't made under the the studio system. It's my favorite era in filmmaking personally. And, um, but that's more just to say that even today, I think there's this veneer that Hollywood sets forth that it is, you know, uh, oh, yeah. not a yeah. business right. right it's right. it's yeah. it's committed to art first and they're, foremost. they're really they're really uh pushing that hard lately yeah. Yeah. yes they absolutely. absolutely are if i had remembered i would have worn my uh my cat people shirt today bill but that that first scene with michael lerner as as lipnick and then uh polito as lou breeze when when Fink comes to see him is is one of my favorites in the movie mm-hmm. um not least of which because in in another world, it kind of feels like Polito would be playing that Lipnick character. You know, he plays the much yeah, more kind yeah, of like weird, yeah. spineless, you know, uh, effete kind of uh, henchman in in this uh, scenario. Um, and they're both doing amazing work. It's so unlike other stuff that I'm used to seeing Polito Polito do. 
Um, but but in that entire exchange, I I just laugh every time because Barton says says maybe like three words and he never and he, answers a question. That's and, he, and, and 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 Barton never gets a chance to taste his coffee. I don't think either. He uh, I'm not even sure he says that he wants the coffee. If I remember, no, correctly. I don't think they so. just, I don't they just think get so, him yeah. the coffee. Um, but but when Lipnick says you know specifically like we all have that Barton Fink feel, uh, being that you're actually Barton Fink, <laughs> I suppose you have it in droves. You know, <laughs> like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and they they go back to this time and time again. You know, this like give us that Barton Fink feeling, and then by the end of the movie of course he's like i got a uh, hundred writers under contract if you give me that barton fink feeling yes exactly that it's that it's not special and unique it's not actually about the name it's about the the uh you know kind of aping of of a particular style that yeah, actually sells. yeah having being able to put this uh, veneer of art over it by having a name attached to it um, and then, of course, you know, we go to where most of the movie is set, which is in the Hotel Earl, mm-hmm. um, which is in and of itself like a, a living, breathing entity in the movie. And um, sweating. It is. Literally. It, if this were a Cronenberg movie, like the walls would be actually breathing and, you know, like <laughs> yes. rising and falling. Um, but it's it's such a kind of icky place, you know, and and. Uh, perfectly punctuated by the introduction of Buscemi's character Chet, you know, that he, uh, after this, this long resonating, like 42nd, uh, bell comes up from a hole in the ground as if mm-hmm. he's like walking yeah. out of like the pits of hell to, yeah. to introduce himself. And, um, it's, it's this like beautifully purgatorial kind of, yeah. kind of setting. Yeah. Well, the, they said that, uh, one of their main inspirations was Polanski and mm. it has that, that ominous nothing makes sense vibe to it. And, and a person is now in the situation where um, I don't understand this place. I don't, I don't understand what's going on around me. Um, Nobody can explain it to me. um, But nothing seems right here. He's, he's too nervous. He, He doesn't know how to go about, living in this place in, in Los Angeles. He doesn't know anybody. He doesn't um, know the, the system. He doesn't know movies. Um, and so he can't figure out a way to extract himself. And he thinks staying there is better than being at a, a ritzy place, which Lipnick offers him. He'd rather, he, he claims to write for the common man and for the people, but he'd rather be alone. And Charlie Meadows has to force himself on him. They do the thing that you say, Bill, so beautifully, which is that they don't explain things to you. They just sort of let you take them in and consider Mm -hmm. them. And rather than feeling like alienated from it all and like removed from the film, I was like pulled into the space, even like at my own sort of like, despite my own misgivings, like I was, I was like repulsed by it. And when, you know, the first time that the wallpaper comes off and it's sopping wet and you see the glue um, oozing out. Like I was disgusted, but I was also mm. like fascinated by it. Well, and then also when he gets uh, the tax from Chet uh, and he starts trying to pin the wallpaper back up and he hears the neighbors, it's interpreted by Barton and especially Charlie as a couple having sex it could also be interpreted in some considering what eventually happens in this hotel, like maybe something bad is happening. And there's yep. also it's it's and there's the, when he when Barton ends up having sex with um, Audrey, 
you know, they they fall into bed and the camera moves into the bathroom and goes to the sink. And it's, you know, the cliche of, you know, uh, you know, a hole going, you know, and with and it's time to her moan, but it's going into the sewer. It goes down into the sewer. And when you're I, as I remember, when it gets down to the sewer, I, you start to hear like this weird laughter. It might be Charlie. Um, and it's just it makes like the one happy moment Barton has had. And of course, you know what happens in the morning when he discovers discovers in the morning. But it's like the one happy moment that Barton has had since he's moved to Los Angeles. Um, even that is tainted and filthy, and it's not satisfying at all. And the phrase that kept ringing in my mind when they went to the pipes was a uh, a thing that Charlie had said in a scene or two prior when they were talking about the noise in. Yeah the space mm-hmm. and he said yeah it's these pipes man yeah. you hear everything and barton is like but i don't like he he's like that doesn't make any sense that but he doesn't no he, he doesn't follow through with it he's but he's he's like what are you talking about you can see it in his face yeah you also you know begin to deduce far uh sooner than barton does that the the hotel itself is sort of like this externalization of something going on inside of charlie right Mm -hmm. like while it is sort of uh you know uh a a space that's deeply subjective and about sort of the the psyche of barton so many things are constantly mirrored there you know the heat pulling the the wallpaper off uh the 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 glue of the wall of the wallpaper glue and the pus in his ear Exactly. Uh, yeah, look, he's yeah. he's dripping the same kind of ooze out of his ear. He's <laughs> constantly sweating the same way. Um, by the end of the movie, of course, you know Barton sort of catches on to what's going on here. You know, when when the cops come and see him again, and he says, uh, "It's hot." You know, it's hot in here. Ch- Charlie must be back because it's hot again. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Charlie, must you begin be. to realize yeah. what's going Which, on. But I wonder what you make of it, Bill. Like what what the the relationship between the hotel Earl and and Charlie is exactly. It's one of those things that that I said, you know, it's hard for me to land on an interpretation, but, and one of the things that I uh, love about my favorite horror uh, films and books and so forth is an inexplicable quality where you can't, you can't quite land on, on, on it. And that's what makes it so discomforting. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I, I feel like it's, it, you know, the, the simple uh, interpretation that this is hell he's in hell um mm-hmm. it's hard to to make a direct connection from that idea to what's going on in the rest of the story about you know writing in hollywood because i don't think the cohen's are equating um having to write for a studio um and hell i i, I don't <laughs> no. know right uh so it's just one of those things that it's and i guess this is probably the most disappointing answer I could possibly give you, but it's one of those things for me where I don't have a really solid read on, on it. It just works somehow. Mm -hmm. I just, it, it, everything seems to fit. And I said earlier um, that their instincts, the Coen brothers instincts are so sharp. Like you'd, you'd think, I mean, who knows? they, They probably do second guess, certain ideas but it feels like when i watch their best movies that they have this instinct that this is going to work and um turning this into a horror movie which it ultimately is in my opinion 
is one of the most surprising things I've ever seen happen when watching, when seeing a movie for the first time, that this, that's where this goes. When he, when he wakes up next to Audrey and slaps the mosquito and she doesn't wake up and then the blood starts pooling. I was like, well, this is a dream. And then it's not a dream. Yeah. That's one of the most like inexplicable parts of the movie. Um, and I absolutely love it. It's, it's so horrifying when you realize what's happened, when the blood pools all, all over the mattress. Um, and in, classic Cohen style like as as you mentioned already as the way that they handle violence you know Charlie finally f- discovers what's happening offers to help Barton remove the body you know Barton is in the in the the bathroom just sort of staring down at his feet on the the dirty mm-hmm. floor and Charlie picks up the body you know kind of hefts her up and carries her out you know and bangs her head on the wall and bangs her head on the wall like really really hard um i want to break in really quick because uh, i don't want to interrupt you but they uh, uh they've talked about uh, not that specific moment but in reaction to their movies in an interview i read a long time ago they said one of the things they that they think at that time confused audiences about their work was the thought while an audience is watching is, am I permitted to laugh at this? They're so good at that though. They're so good at eliciting that question, but mm -hmm. also making it like impossible for you not to feel that sense of laughter or levity in a, in Mm -hmm. a terrifying moment. Right. Now people are going to say to you, Wallace Beery wrestling. It's a B picture. You tell them bullshit. We do not make B pictures here in Capitol. Let's put a stop to that rumor right now. Thanks, Lou. Join us. Join us. We're talking about the Wally Beery picture. Excellent picture. Yeah, we got a treatment on it yet? No, not yet, Jack. We just bought the story. Saturday evening post. Ah, the hell with the story. Wally Beery is a wrestler. I want to know his hopes, his dreams. Naturally, you have to get mixed up with a bad element. And uh, romantic interest. You know the drill. Romantic interest, or else a young kid, an orphan. What do you think, Lou? Wally a little too old for romantic interest. <laughs> Look at me. A writer in the room, and I'm asking Lou what the goddamn story should be. Which is it, Bart? Orphan? Dame? Both, maybe? Maybe we should do a treatment. Hell. Let Bart take a crack at it. He'll get in the swing of things, or I don't know writers. Let's make it a dame, Bart. Keep it simple. We don't got to tackle the world the first time out. The important thing is we all wanted to have that Barton Fink feeling. I mean, I guess we all have that Barton Fink feeling. But since you're Barton Fink, I'm assuming you have it in spades. The relationship with sex, uh, the, the, the relationship this movie has with sex is an interesting one. You know, like you said, you know, the the one moment of of like sexual like ecstasy Barton gets to feel, you know, being in bed with uh, with Judy Davis's character with Audrey. Uh, we we go down into this dirty, disgusting pipe. Um, and there's also like a lot of homoerotic tension. <laughs> well, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he, 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 sex. He's a man. We wrestled. We wrestled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that line is the one that gets me. And, and you know, just the, the way that they shoot that scene. I think the Coens even mentioned uh, in an interview that they... Uh, believe that there are are two sex scenes in the movie. There's the one with Audrey and and Barton, and then the scene in which Charlie and Barton wrestle is also a sex scene. Absolutely. 
but you know, we, we were we were talking about you know uh, how many gay gangsters are there in Miller's Crossing, and and there's this this question that comes up again here, this sort of like tension that that the cops seem you know to key in on right away this relationship yeah. mm-hmm. between the two of them. Well, and the other parts of the film that reference sex uh, explicitly or sort of sonically are also kind of grotesque and and um and uncomfortable they're not sensual right and i'm thinking specific specifically of the moaning that we talked about which you could read as on the one hand moaning from sex or also something terrible happening mm-hmm. so like how hot can it be right? right um as a viewer but then there's also the scene when barton goes to visit mayhew's bungalow and mm-hmm. mayhew is crying out for his honey um he's crying out for audrey and he's saying my honey and he's sort of like moaning and and he's he's on the one hand it sounds like he's you know in this sort of like drunken agony and then on the other hand it sounds like there's a kind of ecstasy to his yells and that's another scene that like is sexually evocative in in so many ways and also is like uncomfortable and it's not sexy but it's it is this kind of like excess that we keep talking about it it makes you wonder about the relationship between audrey and mayhew um and if there's anything beyond her basically writing his books for him at this point and the things he's saying is is in that scene is is nonsense He, he says where's my honey and then the other thing he says um, is uh, the waters lapping up my honey? It's like, what yes. the hell does that mean? It, it's it's just it's just one very strange scene after another. Yeah, and the you know we're talking about the space of the hotel having this kind of like subjectivity that's very tied to Charlie, um, John Goodman's character. But before I caught on to that, the thing that I kept thinking of was how subjective the the film all feels uh in relation to Barton even the opening scene um where you know we see a man we hear voices coming from somewhere some corridor and we see a man uh working with some ropes and some cables mm-hmm. and we pan back and we pan past John Turturro's face that's sort of crooked and wide-eyed and as he's watching something which we understand later is a play that he's written um and even that that like one shot when we're just cruising past him and watching his face we don't see what's happening we don't know the story of what's going on we just hear the dialogue from that point on i just i felt like i was experiencing his world um, yeah. and his perspective. Well, there's not a scene that he's not in, um, mm-hmm. um, which you can't say about Miller's Crossing because Tom's not in every scene. This is all this is all from Barton's point of view, and um, you know when when the movie starts, he's not as pompous as he may be. He's not especially confident. Um, he doesn't trust the good reviews for his play, and it could be that it's his mind um, crumbling and it's started happening before the movie did. Um, and we're seeing it start to accelerate. I'm, but I'll, I'll be honest. I'm not a big fan of, 
it's all in his head kind of interpretations for the for this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It 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 could be both literal and it's all in his head. It could be both at once almost. That yep. that that he his mind is crumbling. He is experiencing some insane things, and he is also blowing those things up even more than they are. And it just cracks his mind wide open. We also never find out whether or not there's a head inside of that box. You know, I, I think there is. <laughs> there's I, I, absolutely I mean, a head in that box. <laughs> but, I knew that I, before I even knew that that was Charlie's MO. But at the end of the movie, you can tell just from looking sure, at it. It's yeah, a head shaped box. I do like the the conversation, the quick little back and forth at the end with the woman on the beach though. Uh, yeah. you know, when, when she asks Barton, uh, what's in the box and he says i don't know and he says is it yours and he says i don't know either it, it might be you know <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's ambiguous but i it's my it's like nah it's a head there's a head in there it's a head it's for sure i i like to believe that i mean it, it's so comforting to think that there must be a head in there but the other <laughs> that's the other thing about it though it, the ending is so obviously it's so dark it, that's it's become a horror movie at this point but that phone call he makes trying to reach his aunt and uncle and that clearly the implication is Charlie murdered them. And it's just, it just is like you start this movie as a, it's, it's a, a, a comedy about a pompous playwright and you end on, it's a complete nightmare. And um, I, I feel like I'm doing a bad job of, of, of telling you guys like what this movie means, because I just, I just, it's one of those movies that even though there's the surface, not surface, um, there's a the stuff, there's the political stuff, there's the, the fascism, there's the art um, critiques, um, but but the horror stuff is just something that I honestly just roll with. I just I just take it in and am amazed that this movie exists, kind of, you know, because it's it's unlike mm-hmm. I've seen the Polanski movies that inspired them, and it's even though I said it's closest to the tenant, it's really not that close to the tenant. Um, it's it, it, it's clear it's easily the most it's easily the weirdest movie they've ever made. And along with a serious man, the most complex um, and, and it raises the most questions, but I just, it's one of those things that I just, I let everything just wash over me at this point. And I just, I just, just all works. I don't think you're doing a bad job at all. I think what, I think that it is inarticulable in so many ways is what makes it so powerful to your point. So it would be, it would be sort of, um, deflating if we were able to articulate it perfectly yeah, yeah having having as roger ebert said in, at one point when he was uh writing i don't know if it was in his original review of that movie or in some later piece he wrote he's like every theory that people have offered up about what then they're convinced about what mulholland drive means conveniently leaves out a lot of stuff that would refute that theory yeah um and it just—I don't understand the what's enjoyable about solving the mystery. You know, I—I I agree with you, Bill. You know, th- this movie to, to like we like we said with with Lynch already. You know, to to try to solve it like a Rubik's cube is is uh, you know sort of contrary to the point. And you know, if if we're tying it all up, it makes perfect sense then that this is the kind of movie that they would really enjoy writing and writing very quickly while they were having trouble organizing all of the threads of a very plot driven, very ABC kind of film, you know, this Mm -hmm. one that uh, not only doesn't do that, but actually like, you know, definitively says like, that's, 
that's contrary to what the movie is actually trying to do, like the, to the purpose of watching it. And that's why I uh, think this is n- maybe not a, a great comparison, but uh, it just popped into my head when you were saying that because it's this movie is not inexplicable in any way. You can connect the dots easily, but there will be blood. I remember, uh, you know, because you, you can look at that movie and interpret it as an attack on religion, an attack on capitalism. The capitalism stuff is obviously there. there there's no denying that. But um, the religion stuff, I mean, if, if you're an atheist and you think that the main point is to go after the Paul Dano character, then you have to accept as the atheist point of view, Daniel Plainview is like, is that, is that what you want? And I remember reading an interview with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson and he said he set out with those sorts of things in mind, but as he was writing it, they kind of fell away as his, uh, like it it wasn't, they were no longer the point. The point was, the the characters and the 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 formalist art of it all um and so you can interpret it however you want but i don't it just that sort of thing is just not that important to me and which is one of the reasons you know and you guys seem strike me as being the same way the idea that you can only like art that conforms to your point of view of the world um, is nonsense. And what a boring way to live. You know, there's so much, there's so much art that I love that I, if, if I have to boil it down to the politics, I guess I don't agree with it, but I mean, who gives a shit? I, I, I don't, if it's good art, I don't give a shit. And it's, you know, and if it's really good art, then that is the political aspect is not really the thing that's the firing the film it's 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 the aesthetics it's the art it's the you know it's the inexp- the, the the stuff you can't really easily explain or describe we we're talking about this with regards to s craig zoller yeah <laughs> i love that yep. guy <laughs> no he's he's amazing i, he's I like love one of, his films one of my favorite contemporary filmmakers yeah. and i was just thinking about you know like uh i saw at least two posts in the last like 24 hours of somebody doing that post that comes around on Twitter, uh, you know, once in a blue moon where they, they post a photo of Clint Eastwood uh, at the RNC talking to the chair and they say, uh, so uh, this, this man's, this man's, so uh, this will be this man's legacy. Like this is the thing that uh, he'll be remembered for. Really? It's like, no, no, his, his film career will be the thing. Only, only for. five, only five people still remember that. Yeah. Right. And, and it's the, the five people that tweet about it. Yeah. Right. And it, once yeah, every six it, months that just happened the other day and it's like th- what a shame this is how he's going out it's like first of all the guy's still alive second of all did you see oh shit was the uh, richard jewel yeah. <laughs> richard jewel is one of the best <laughs> things he's ever done in, in it's his career so good it's so good and sully and it, is it's... fantastic too sully's great um and you know whether you like it or not it's like okay Two years after this happened, he made the highest grossing movie of his career, and it was nominated for a Best Picture. Yeah. And it's also great. (laughs) And furthermore, if you want to, like, people assume that that movie, American Sniper, has this conservative political agenda, which I Mm. do not buy for a second, um, because Eastwood has said many, many times in interviews that he's not pro-war, and it is not a pro-war film. I don't know how you Mm -hmm. watch American Sniper coming away with, like, well, that was... 
now I want to, you know, join the army or, you know, it doesn't, right. I, I don't, it doesn't make any sense. Yes. He's conservative, but there's so many shades. He's, I mean, he just manages to be, you know, someone who like transcends his own personal politics and makes, you know, in, incredible movies and insanely like empathetic movies too. Like I think yeah. about like the one, two of like a flags of our fathers and right. letters from Iwo Jima right. and right. just like how, uh, you know, that, the, that story told from the perspective of, of the Japanese, you know, who and the sailed, ambition like, behind that, the, the ambition yeah. behind doing that, you're going to dismiss him, a guy who, who does something like this, you're going to just dismiss him because you don't, uh, he supports a political party that you don't. I, I just don't get it. I don't, yeah. I, I, I can't imagine living that way. It, it sounds no. so, it sounds so boring. Strange as it may seem, Charlie, I, I guess I write about people like you, the average working stiff, the common man. Well, ain't that a kick in the head. Yeah, I guess it is. But in a way, that's exactly the point. There's a few people in New York, hopefully our numbers are growing, who feel we have an opportunity now to forge something real out of everyday experience. Create a theater for the masses based on a few simple truths, not on some shop-worn abstractions about drama that don't hold true today if they ever did. I, I don't guess this means much to you. Hell yeah, I could tell you some stories. And that's the point, that we all have stories. The hopes and dreams of the common man are as noble as those of any king. The stuff of life. Why shouldn't it be the stuff of theater? And God damn it, why should that be such a hard pill to swallow? Don't call it new theater, Charlie. Call it real theater. Call it our theater. I can see you feel pretty strongly about it. I know we're going long, but the the last thing I would really like us to talk about is John Goodman's performance. I just like, what the fuck? Like, it's just, yeah. he's so good. Yeah. He's so, so good. The moment he comes barreling into Barton Fink's hotel doorway and he's a mixture of jovial and kind of sweet almost but also like there is something a little bit unsettling about him like Like, he's doing so much sorry i want to say this really quick i I wanted to bring it up in miller's crossing but it happens in this movie too They, they did it for like two movies in a row and then stopped someone leaves a room opens a door says a line and then leaves the room did you notice that in both movies every time someone leaves a room they open the door turn to the other person in the room say a line and then walk out hmm. two movies in a row. And then, and in this one, they add the whoosh sound of the door closing every time there, oh. there's an added. So, but yeah, when, when Charlie first, when he, uh, Charlie first comes in, he opens the door. He's got his hand to his head already. It's like, did you, somebody complain? And it's like, his head is already on fire. He's always on fire, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. And yeah, he, he's amazing in it. And he's also so funny. Um, there's so many things in this movie that make me just bark laughing because of the way he delivers it. Like, and I said before, uh, a stitch Oki, but it, it, it was the whole, and I'm sorry that I've memorized these movies to the extent that I have. <laughs> Don't be. Yeah. But, but Barton says that he's, uh, probably sounds pretty grand for someone writing a wrestling picture, uh, with Wallace Beery. He's like, Beery, you got no complaints there. He's a fine, he's a hell of an actor. And then he goes into the stitch jokes, but, but don't get me wrong. Wallace Beery wrestling picture could be a pip, could be a pip, could be and, a pip. And it just it makes me laugh every fucking time. I it 
I don't, it's one of those things where like, I don't know why this is funny, but it is. And then he's terrifying. Uh, and when he, when he's on during the wrestling scene, when he's on the floor and he said, come on, I'm trying to get Barton to come down to his level. But it, and I remember, uh, years ago, Bob Costas had a late night talk show. Hmm. We talked to all sorts of people and he had John Goodman on and he wasn't promoting Barton Fink, but they were going through his career up to that point. And I don't remember what else he said, but, but Costas said, uh, uh, so what about so let's talk about Barton Fink and John Goodman was like oh that movie <laughs> so it, it struck me that it was the most challenging <laughs> thing he'd ever he'd ever done up to at least up to that point and you can see why because he has so many different things to do so many different levels to play and it, it it's such an intense performance when it's not common charming it's either common charming or terrifying the the physicality of that role does so much work i was telling aaron before i even understood what was going on with his character i knew about this kind of like simmering rage this kind of the bigness of his of his physical form um uh, overtaking things because of a few key moments that he does that are very small and there's a moment when he like hits his head because I think he's talking about how hot it is or something, or he's, mm. he's bemoaning something and he hits his head a little too hard. And yeah, then yeah. like mm-hmm. when he's down on the floor and they're wrestling and they, they focus on the shot of John Goodman taking Barton's hand and slapping it to his chest. Same mm. thing. He does it just a little bit too hard where you're mm. like, there's some there's some power there. There's yeah. like a there's a real intensity to his his physicality and he looks like he could tear anybody in half. Tear he's, anybody mm-hmm. in half. There's a sh- another shot which I would say this is more the directing than the performance although he does it well but but he's in the background and a little out of focus and Barton is uh says something along the lines of uh, the life of the mind is a a lonely place or something like that. And when he says life of the mind, you see Goodman in the background, like put like, he's like, he's getting a headache just hearing the words. He's getting a headache. <laughs> I miss that. I love that. Yeah. And then he shows them the life of the mind. He does. Yeah. He said, he, he said he was going to, and then he did. And then he does. <laughs> I would like a- to, I would like to say though, uh, if we're wrapping up, I would like to, uh, say a couple good words about two other performances just really quickly. John, Ma- John Mahoney as mm-hmm. Mayhew. Uh, he's one, uh, I love that guy, the late yeah. great John Mahoney, uh, and his very subtle Southern accent and just the way he listens attentively to, to Barton when they meet in the bathroom. And then when they're having uh, the picnic lunch and he gets drunk and he starts singing old black Joe. And I, I just, mm-hmm. it's such an evocative performance that he's in like two scenes and the Coens have a tendency to do that. They, they will cast great actors who appear maybe twice or three times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other in this is Tony Shalhoub um, mm-hmm. as Ben yes. Geisler, yep. who is hysterical. Um, you know, sort uh, Throw a rock in here, you'll hit one, and do me a favor, Bart. Throw it hard. Uh, I love that line so much. <laughs> it, he, it, he does it, it so well. It's amazing. Uh, th- I think those two performances are uh, singularly f- fantastic. I, 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 they're so they're in it just enough. They're in the, in it, in the movie just the right amount, but 
you could have done with five more scenes with both of them. Um, I just, I just love them. Yeah. Shalub, especially that, that thrower, you can hit him with a rock and do me a favor, throw it hard. And then the scene where he says, I don't know what you did, but you've, you've caused a mess for us. Cause he likes you, you know, he's taken an interest in this. The worst he, thing he, he could ever hear. Jumped, he almost jumps across the desk. He actually gets up <laughs> on his desk a little bit. He's so, he's so mad at him for Litnik taking an interest. <laughs> and and he says very noticeably because Lipnick says it with proper grammar. Um, very noticeably, Tony Shalhoub's character says he's taken a interest. Taken a interest, yeah. Taken and it's, interest. it's the way he says it, where you can tell he's just like he's almost like undone by it all that he can't even like speak properly yeah. about. It. And that's almost certainly uh, a quirk of the the screenplay. I have I haven't read it before, but I, I know the Cohen's tendency to be very explicit in the way that they write dialogue. I, I recall yes. a, a, a interview with Peter Stormar where he's talking about Fargo and you know talking uh, about how he kept saying the line, uh, "Let's go to Pancake House" to Steve Buscemi. And yeah. uh, Joel and, and Ethan pulling him aside and being like, "What the what the fuck are you doing? The the, the line is Pancakes House. We're go. We should go to Pancakes House." And like correcting him on it and really scolding him for not reading the dialogue right. Well, in the script for Fargo, there's the part in the movie where William H Macy thinks that um, he's going to get the money from his father-in-law that he's looking for, and the the pitch that he's given to Stan Grossman. And his father-in-law are is, excuse me, um, looks good to them, and so they call him into the office, and uh, uh, Grossman says to him, "If these numbers are uh, right, this is a pretty good deal." And uh, Macy says, "Oh, they're right, all right, believe me." And in the script, he's saying, "Believe me." In the script, it's B L E E M E, believe me, believe me, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Uh, of course, we could probably talk about this movie and Miller's Crossing for another several hours. Um, we didn't even get to uh, the, the the woman on the beach in the picture. We didn't oh, talk about you know, the, know. the sound design of, of this movie specifically. You know, Carter Burwell, as we already mentioned, you know, doing incredible work in both of these films. Um, but uh, yeah, just just endless, endless things to discuss about these films. And also plenty that is better just left to uh, to the viewing. Uh, rather than discussing it too much, but uh, could not uh, pick a better person than our friend Bill Ryan to to take this journey with us. Bill, thanks so much for coming back and hanging out with us for a little while. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Uh, Bill, where can uh, people find you and your work? Uh, well, my blog, which is a little bit dormant, um, but still you can find old stuff that I wrote. It's uh, The Kind of Face You Hate um, is the name of it. And I write very regularly for The Bulwark, and I have a piece pending, but I won't get into it because I haven't even written it yet. But in a, like a week or so, I'll have another piece. And I also write uh, occasionally for RogerEbert.com and TheDecider.com. And once for Oscilloscope's uh, Musings uh, blog. Right on. Uh, well, thank you again, Bill, so very much. Um, as always, you can follow along with us at HitFactoryPod. Uh, subscribe to us in, on Patreon, patreon.com slash hitfactorypod for just $5 a month for bonus episodes. Shout out to our capitalist overlords. Their names are Linda and Jesse K. And we will catch you all the next time. Thanks, everyone. Oh, Danny boy. 
The pipes, the pipes are calling From glen to glen And down the mountainside The summer's gone And all the roses fallen It's you, it's you Must go and I must bide But come ye back When summer's in the meadow Or when the valley's hushed And white with snow I'll be here in sunshine or in shadow Oh Danny boy Oh Danny boy I love you so But if you come and all the flowers are dying and I am dead as dead I will may be You'll come and find the place where I am lying And kneel and say an Ave there for me